Today's reading is in Mark 14, 51 and 52. And the heading is, A Young Man Flees. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is God's word. All glory and praise be to God. I love um, approaching study knowing that every word in this book is inspired. Um, And approaching something like those two verses at first is maybe a little strange. I mean, if, if we kind of review what just happened, a guy with a towel had it pulled off and he ran away naked from Jesus. Where do you go from there? <laughs> this is actually a fascinating passage. Um, it's fascinating in that Mark, only Mark tells it. And as uh, Pastor John said, some, some people would say that this is like, this is Mark's signature on his gospel. And people have fought to try to understand who is this man who runs away in this scene. There, the theories abound. People say it's Jesus himself. People say it's Mark, and Mark put himself into the passage. And it's almost like a, like a painter painting themselves into the bottom corner of their own painting, and you come to find it later. Some say it's just a... Um, Some say it's just a literary figure that Mark uses to tell his story. And I think it's, it's much more than all of those things, and who it is is completely unimportant. Mark doesn't tell us. Um, if it were important, Mark would tell us. I remember one time um, talking with uh, one of our missionaries, Drew, who's in South Asia, and uh, we were talking about communion. And he said, you know, it's interesting. We were having a conversation, you know, in the United States, uh, the big, big controversy with communion is should it be wine? Should it be grape juice? Because Jesus would never allow alcohol in the room, right? And so, <laughs> it's amazing. Those dinner guests are like, wow, he brought out the good stuff because they love Welch's. But that's the big controversy for us when it comes to the communion, right? Should it be grape juice? Should it be wine? Should it be cheesy jalapeno bread? Should it be stale crackers? And I say that as someone who once received an offer to bring in better tasting bread for communion, which, which we refused. And talking to our missionaries, like, well, what do you what do you think about communion? You know, like uh, where 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 I serve, we can't go to the store and buy grape juice? What, what if it's water and bread? Is that wrong? It was an interesting conversation. It's like, you know, the, it's one of those areas where Scripture gives us a lot of room, and it's really more about the person receiving the element. Um, this, is, this is not about, you know, getting the right steps set. This is not about presenting things in the appropriate way. Um, you, you're not doing anything against the, the body of Christ if you take communion or if you present communion with the wrong elements. Let's focus on the wrong thing. And so in the same vein, Mark purposely obscures whoever this person is. He doesn't tell us. It's not important who this is. Again, we can we could put our minds on things sometimes and go the completely wrong way. And, and maybe it's interesting, right? Maybe we're following a, a, a breadcrumb trail, if you will. And maybe that can be interesting, but it can detract us from seeing the main point. And so as I'm reading this, I'm, I'm reminded of many, many, many times when um, I, I like dramatic complaining. It's kind of my thing. Um, and oftentimes I'll, I'll look around and just kind of jokingly say, really, this is what my life has been reduced to? You know, like my, my life is funny, like a clown. And that's all based on the notion that I like to take myself way more seriously than whatever's happening right here and right now in this instance. This scene in Mark's gospel frames up 
the reality of Jesus' entire ministry. The, the, the Gospel of Mark more than 40 times says immediately, immediately, immediately. Jesus, as he goes, leads his disciples to obedience. And he demonstrates his own obedience to his Father through his immediacy. But he never stops being obedient. So we could, we could be a little different. Sometimes we're all about immediacy, right? We're, we're Americans, right? We need to get a lot of things done. We have whole books about how to get more things done than you should ever even try to do. We have a, a getting things done method, a GTD, where you make down, you write down lists and goals and all of these things that you're trying to cram in to get them all done. And Jesus, hyperproductive and obedient on the way. And that's what he leaves behind for his church. And now he, if he were a negative and snarky person, after all of these soldiers come, the guards come, they've got torches, they've got long swords and short swords. His buddy cuts off somebody's ear. He glues it back onto the side of their face. And now they've all left him. Some dude with a towel comes out or a blanket or whatever he's got on. They try to grab him. He runs away from them. They're left holding this thing. And there's a naked guy running down the street. And if Jesus were sinful like me, he could say, this is what my life has been reduced to. As he saw these little pasty cheeks running down the trail from the Olive Garden. One writer said of Mark chapter 14, 51 and 52, it appears out of nowhere at the wrong place in the story, at the wrong place in the text, like a clown at a funeral. It's such a great way of putting it, right? You know, you come into the funeral, everything is somber, the lid, the lid is open because you have to unlock the person's iPhone, right? So you kind of need their, their face so you can get at those last couple of accounts. So you just hold the phone up to them. And then a clown with big flopping shoes comes and honks his horn a few times in the front of this place. It's very out of place. How do these things fit together? So what are we going to do with this story? Do we go against Mark and try to figure out who is this person? Or maybe, and I would suggest the right approach is to start with a question. Why did Mark put this here? And, and a step further, to remember that these 66 books are inspired. This is what God saw fit for us to have to know Him. Why did the Holy Spirit see fit that under inspiration, Mark would include this really strange sounding footnote? What does this add to me? What does this add to my understanding about God? He didn't just throw it in there, there's a point. And so those questions, why did Mark include it? It's a great place to stop and get focused this morning. If you were to go to our church website, transitchurch.org slash Mark, um, we have guiding principles for our study. We have three guiding principles for our study of the book of Mark. Those are number one, to show Mark's purpose. Number two, to answer the question, does this matter? Whatever we're studying in a moment, does this matter? And finally, to feel more comfortable with Mark's gospel. Those are our three guiding principles as we go through the book of Mark. To show Mark's purpose. There are three other gospels. Why did he write this one? If Mark's gospel didn't exist, what in the counsel of God would we miss? And we want to pull out of the text those key passages that are part of Mark's goal and walk away knowing the gospel of Mark better so that it adds to our faith, it adds to our walk, it adds to our life. It's something that we can talk about as we talk with people. I think we forget sometimes, you know, we're, we're, we're somewhat spoiled, right? By God's grace, he has allowed us to be in a church where we're celebrating the gospel, where we're excited about the Bible. That, that's not everyone and that's not everywhere. I remember the first time that I sat under biblical teaching. I was, I was floored, first of all. I thought, what? 
I didn't know you could, I thought you just, you, you, you read it, then you told a funny joke, and then you talked about how life should be great when Jesus loves you for 30 minutes, or 15 minutes, and then everybody went to lunch, and church was really about building a better network for your business. Find me a large business owner in town that goes to a small church. Second guiding principle. To answer the question, does this matter? Does Mark's gospel matter to my life today? And if I was to take that a step further, because these are our general guiding principles, if I was to take that a step further and say, does Mark's mention in verses 51 and 52 about someone who was a follower of Jesus, who came out to see what was going on at his arrest outside the Garden of Gethsemane, wearing only a towel, a blanket, a cloth, who then, for whatever reason, ran away after trying to be seized and was willing to leave that cloth behind in order to get away. Does that matter to my life? Then finally, to feel more comfortable with Mark's gospel, to be able to understand what it teaches, to be able to see the riches from the Word of God. That's where I became a believer. That's where I became saved. That's where God found me was in the book of 2 Samuel. I gave up. I've never understood that all of this was not just neat stories. I always thought it was just stories, right? I mean, like it was a planogram. It was things that you had been raised, you were told, and it was almost as sensical as how the zebra got its stripes. I always say how the zebra got its spots, and people like, it's like an advertisement I saw in Giant the other day. My wife was like, only you would see this. It was a picture in the middle of the, the flyer for Giant, and it said three for $5. And the first thing that struck me is it was three for $5 on either bell peppers or cucumbers. I don't know how those are related and why they share a square. Maybe it's that you get three for $5, but there was two bell peppers and five cucumbers. Neither one was the three. How does this story not just exist like a clown at a funeral? How is this important to what we understand? Now, I'm going to give two premises. Premises is premi. Premise. One, that there are interesting breadcrumbs to follow that are important and interesting. And they're there. But two, and this rests on a sub-point, when you want someone to get somewhere, you don't leave breadcrumbs. If, if I wanted you to get to my house, I wouldn't lead you to my house with breadcrumbs. I would send you my address. And so Mark's point doesn't rest on breadcrumbs. Now, that doesn't mean they're not there. But that's not where Mark's point rests. So we'll explore both of those things. Where does Mark want us to go? And what are some of those interesting tangents along the way that can be helpful? I don't think this is a baby in a bathwater situation. I don't think you have to throw out the breadcrumbs as long as you're aware, yes, they're interesting, but they're not the main thing. And so if we lean in on the way in studying this text, we will see that immediate obedience requires awareness, wakefulness, careful attention, and prayer. Now, as we've, we've started to march towards the end of this gospel, we've been talking a lot about wakefulness because Jesus has been talking a lot about wakefulness. We've been talking a lot about prayer because if you pay attention to Jesus' life, he did quite a lot of praying. How frequently do you find everybody wakes up and Jesus is already gone? In fact, we were just in Sunday school this morning and we were talking about being somewhere at 5.30 in the morning. One of the brothers said, well, I'm not up at 5.30 in the morning. Well, of course not. That's what alarm clocks do. Right? <laughs> it's like, there's not some disease that you have where your body can't wake up. You're just a lazy, lazy man. <laughs> Doug Klingon is a lazy, lazy man. 
Mark's gospel was all about immediacy. Immediately, 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 immediately. Forty times he said immediately. Now in this last section, in the section that we're in here from like verse from chapter 14 all the way through the end, there's only four mentions of this immediacy. It's almost like something happened. It's almost like you were sprinting in a straight line. And I don't know if you ever had this dream, I have it, um, where you have to defend yourself or your family and your arms won't move right. You familiar with the concept, right? Like you're trying to fight or you have to do something, but you, you can't move your arms. That's how the Gospel of Mark feels. He's been sprinting and it's almost like his legs hit quicksand as we come here to chapter 13, chapter 14 of his Gospel because he's at the point now. This was the whole point. Was Jesus' obedience on the way and now the cross. And Mark's going to make sure that we really lean in and pay attention here. And I think that there's a part of this that functions to slow us down and say, wait a minute, I can't just read through that. This guy's pasty butt cheeks are sprinting down the road. That's odd. No one else mentioned that. What's going on here? We can't be so comfortable with the Scriptures that when we read about a guy who comes out covered in a blanket, they grab it and he runs away that we don't think, wait a minute, that's different. And that's what happened. Verse 51, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body and they seized him. A young man. Now there's lots of speculation around the word choice here. Neoconus, a young man. Mark only uses it two times. And that's important. Remember, we just said he, he uses this, this concept of immediacy 40 times. 40 times. He uses this word, young man, twice. Now this is one of the breadcrumbs that we're going to see, which is interesting, but not the main thing. The only other time that he uses this is in Jesus' empty tomb. Maybe Matthew and Mark use it to describe the rich young ruler. Mark uses it twice. So, is Mark stretching our mind from this scene where Jesus is about to be arrested to the resurrection, to the future? Is he pulling us on in the story? If you read Mark chapter 16 and verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man, this is the second mention, and only other mention of the phrase, sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. The word for white robe is this really bright, vibrant, um, we, we, say, we see later being talked about as a bleach, whiter than any bleacher could get it. I think if you look at this stained glass that we have here, uh, if you're here when the sun is setting, you see the whiteness in the robe of that angel. When the sun is setting in this room, if you were ever here for that, that is a very brilliant, it, it's, it's almost impressive. You almost wonder if there's some kind of a glowing something inside that angel's robe and that stained glass. The artist really captured that. Entering the tomb, they saw this young man who was wearing white. A white stole, a white robe. Again, this is another word that Mark uses sparingly one other time at the transfiguration. Mark 9, 3. His clothes became a radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. They were an intense white. Mark leaves us more breadcrumbs within this main story. So perhaps this is designed to pull us along this journey that's going to result in Jesus' ascension, his resurrection, his going to be back with the Father, that his death isn't final. Mark is encouraging the reader along. So during the scene of the arrest, if we read back, uh, same chapter, 14, verses 46 through 50. And they laid hands on him, and they seized him. 
But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have I come, have I come out as against a robber? Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. In this moment, Jesus was alone. Except that there was this one young man who followed him. And as Mark shows us, even this one young man who's left has just been seized. Mark specifically says that he followed Jesus, likely a disciple. We know Jesus had lots of disciples. We always talk about the, the 12, um, but you read it in John chapter 6, verse 66, that those disciples turned and followed him no more. So outside of the 12, there were other disciples. There were other people who were followers, other people that were learners, but he specifically leaned into a few. And so as we learned this morning about discipling, we, I love when Jesus, one of my favorite things that Jesus does is says something like, well, um, um, if you, being just people, I, I love <laughs> Jesus' level sets like that all the time, right? Um, we, being just people, if Jesus can disciple 12, I assume I'm less than that. I assume I can lean into less people than that, helpfully. Now, I could try. I could try to take on more than that, um, but experience tells me it doesn't go super well. But there was this one other person who Mark describes as a follower, this young man who followed Jesus, who now has just been seized. And I think this is important because, again, we can read too quickly. See, he was just seized. Who was he seized by? We read back in verse 43 a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders were here. Clubs, swords, torches. This is, this, is a, this is a terrifying scene. And he's come out, he's probably, what's going on? We don't know, was he asleep and he was woken up by the sound? We don't know, did Jesus say, hey, I'm going to go with the twelve, but we're going to go pray in the garden, I want you to just, just go home. And maybe he just went home and he heard something. Maybe he was up and he couldn't sleep. He just came out to see what was going on and he came up on this scene. We don't know. Mark doesn't tell us. We would be guessing. But we know for whatever reason now he's here and he's seeing Jesus who he considers himself likely to be a follower of. He's come out. He's covered just in this blanket. I remember um, not too long ago, you know that goofy song, What Does the Fox Say? I used to laugh at it. You know, it gets stuck in your head. It's an earworm. The thing won't go away. I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm not getting it stuck back in your head again. Have you ever heard a fox? It's the strangest thing. Um, I was laying in bed the other night, and I thought a woman was screaming outside my house. I thought, like, someone was in physical danger. So I grab a pistol, I go outside, and I'm walking with a pistol by my side. Because I'm an idiot, it's an animal, it's a fox screeching. And I go outside and I remember I was thinking to myself, I was like, well, first of all, everybody has a ring doorbell these days. So this is going to be awesome because somebody's going to see me in some skivvies wearing a pair of work boots with a pistol on my side. And I am going to be on Facebook. Amen. <laughs> That's where this guy's at. He's just come outside to check on something. He wasn't prepared maybe for there to be um, torches and swords and clubs. He's just this dude covered in a blanket who wants to see what his Lord is doing. And they seize him. Don't let the gravity of that escape you. These people that seized him, they're not friendly. They don't just want to have a conversation with him. These are violent people. And they've now seized him. And he is so afraid in this moment that he'll do anything to get away. Maybe there's blood on the floor over here. Remember, our buddy just got his ear cut off and glued back on. 
Maybe there's blood on the floor. This is a tense situation. The only reason the other people got away is because Jesus said, let them go. And Jesus is in control of every situation where he's present. And so this guy barely escapes. Barely escapes. They've seized him. Their grip was loose enough that he put a juke move on them, broke some ankles, and was now busting it down the path. Pasty cheeks running. These are interesting breadcrumbs, but nobody leaves breadcrumbs behind when they want to be sure that you get where you're going. You leave clear directions. So why did Mark include this? Three reasons, I think. Number one, because it happened. Number two, because it is the capstone of Jesus' final preparatory ministry for the cross. And three, because it pulls us through the story with purpose. Pointing us on to the final fulfillment of what's really going to happen. It's not just this. It's like a you know a late night infomercial with the Ronco electric food dehydrator. Not only do you get to set it and forget it, there's more. That's why in my house, even though it's been about 15 years, we still have like nine choppers. Remember the chopper? You call them and they're like, oh, you just want to buy one chopper? I mean, you could, but if you buy 17, they're vastly less expensive. And so that year, everybody in our family got a chopper, and I kept like five for myself. So I still have them, even though they're like a dingy yellow. Turns out they never break. I've probably got like two in a box and some yellowed choppers. Mark includes it because it happened. Here's how one writer said it, and I I love this so much. This is my new favorite person. Until they do something terrible and then they're no longer my favorite person. The narrative, so he's talking about the way that people communicate, the way that people write, what Mark is putting together is a narrative story. He's narrating, he's telling a story of what happened. Okay? The narrative is a stained glass window that the reader must look at. A stained glass window is carefully designed by the craftsman. In accordance with a particular theme, style, location in the building, and structure of a window. Nature and availability of materials, expertise of the artist, the glass stain, the lead, the copper, everything else that goes into the production of the window is meticulously planned for the appropriate effect to tell a particular story. Which is why when you're here and the sun is setting and it shines through that angel's robe, you understand that it's brighter than any bleacher could ever turn it. Drawing these stories together. Ascension, resurrection, empty tomb. So too with narratives, whether textual or otherwise, meaning whether you're reading it like we are with Mark or if you're just telling a narration, the interpreter must pay close attention to the text, not just what is being said, but also how it is being said in order that the agenda of the author may be discerned. What was the author doing with what they were saying? And so that is part of our guiding principles in Mark. What was the author doing with what he was saying? He's not just a a record of the facts. If all we needed was a record of the facts, we'd have one gospel, and it wouldn't need a human author. It wouldn't need a particular purpose. But God saw fit to use human authors with their personalities, with their flaws, to carry forward his word with no error, without error. And so Mark is talking about the finality of Jesus' ministry. This is why he no longer talks about immediately, immediately, immediately. We have arrived.
So Mark's gospel walks us down this constricting narrative. Forty times saying immediately. Standing in contrast to the terms above, we're using the whiteness of the robe and the age of the young man, which collapses together this story. Demonstrates Jesus' obedience along the way. All of the things that he did as they would go from town to town. Talk often about the woman that he stopped to talk to who touched his robe. That scene is so perfectly placed. Frenetic scene. So much is going on. The disciples are just trying to get Jesus from one side of the town to the other. The crowds are coming in in droves. If you've ever been to the front row of a concert before, maybe you know like what I mean. You feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get pinned against this fence or wall and die. I feel already like my chest is collapsing on side itself. And this woman touches him and he stops and he looks at his disciples and he says, someone touched me. I'm going to submit to you that that is a ridiculous statement. On its surface, lots of people touched him. People were probably pining and clawing at him. But something mattered. Jesus was there to do something in this moment. He was going to minister to this woman in this moment. And he stopped everything for her. The whole day stopped. The whole movement. The disciples were probably very frustrated. You know, if you've ever, if you've ever been in the military, you know they... they um, when an officer is walking through an area, specifically so in, in the Navy, like in a ship, they said, make a hole, make way, and everyone has to move. It's like what it's supposed to be like. It's not like this in Pennsylvania, but the way it's supposed to be when an emergency vehicle drives through. Or if you're from the South, you know what I mean? When there's a funeral. Here, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Here, when there's a funeral, no one cares. They jump into the middle of the cars, right? You cut off the hearse and honk at it. In the South... If I was to have done that in traffic, I would come directly home to a beating from my father because he would have heard that I didn't pull over for the funeral. And so Jesus stops everything as they're trying to push through this crowd to take care of this woman because along the way, he's obedient to the will of his father. And so Mark gives us the benefit of seeing that time and time and time again. They were going immediately. They were going immediately. They were going immediately, but Jesus stopped to minister along the way. And so now, in these last chapters, where they're effectively at the cross, Mark finally slows down because they've arrived. They've gotten where they were going. We're now going to focus in. It's almost like you were, you know, in a drone above a, a valley, kind of floating around and moving quickly. And then you get to what the destination is, so it comes down and it floats in on the scene, and now you're close. Things slow down. In Mark chapter 13, we start with this lesson of the fig tree. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he suddenly, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's haunting. If, you, if you've been paying attention to what's been happening, re read what Jesus was saying. Nobody knows the day or the hour. His word is not going to expire. Stay awake. You don't know when the time's going to come. It's like a man that put 
his servants in charge. Who do you think that is? Either the man or the servants, you choose. It's like a man who puts his servants in charge, each with his work. I wonder, do we think of ourselves as having work? And he tells them to stay awake. Because you don't know when the master of the house will come, whether it's in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows. You should be hearing some themes here. Or in the morning, unless he comes and finds you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to you all, stay awake. This focus on wakefulness permeates the end of Mark's gospel. Where Mark moves on from immediately, immediately, we're now zoomed in on this finality of Jesus' ministry. The focus on immediacy is almost over. In fact, in, in verses, or excuse me, chapters uh, 14 through 15, Mark mentions this immediacy only four times, and then he's done. Jesus has arrived where he's going. His obedience was immediate, it was complete, and it was a perfect example for us along the way. And what we've seen as we've watched Jesus is that our immediate obedience requires awareness, wakefulness, careful attention, and prayer. Jesus demonstrated this in his mission often. I said before, jokingly, about being awake at 5.30, how often do we see the disciples wake up and uh, they're like, all right, Jesus, we're going to cook some eggs. Where are you? Jesus was off on the mountain to pray. Jesus was already gone. Jesus had already started his day, and the way that his day started was prayerfully, seeking the will of his Father, abiding in his Father. How infrequently are we spending time in prayer? I know, I, I know because I know that's the first thing that goes in your life is prayer. It seems so insignificant. We wake up with so much significance, so many things that need to be done. Whether it's physical labor, whether it's work, whether it's contacts, whether it's talking to people, whether maybe it's even more selfish than that. You ever um, go into your iPhone and see that really depressing chart? And if you have, you know what I mean. It's that chart that tells you where you've been spending your time on your phone and how many hours you spent time on it. And it tells you which categories, right? It's like productivity, social media, and then at the end it just says you're an idiot. <laughs> Just feel like if we could just take that time that it says that we spent doing this, devote a quarter of it to prayer, how much time would you be praying? If you looked at that little chart and said, in a week I spent this much time on my phone, if I spent a quarter of that in prayer, how much time would that be? Jesus' disciples didn't stay wakeful and prayerful. They fell asleep, woken up three times, when the deceiver was on the way, and they weren't ready. Because they weren't ready, somebody's ear got cut off. Jesus, however, being in perfect control of the situation, ensures their safe escape. Mark doesn't discuss it. John does in chapter 18 of his gospel. We see that Jesus ensures their safe escape. What grace. Jesus makes sure that they're going to be able to abandon him completely, but still be safe. And then Mark records this event with the young man. And why is this the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry in Mark's eyes? Because now Jesus is completely alone, completely abandoned. And people so badly wanted to abandon him that they would leave their dignity behind. Like me standing outside in my skivvies with a pair of work boots on on someone's ring doorbell being laughed at right now. This guy comes out to check on his Lord, realizes after being seized, he needs to get out of there and runs away literally naked. Anything to get away from Jesus and get to their safety. This is Jesus' friends. This is Jesus' creation. These are the people for whom Jesus allegedly died, abandoning him in droves, doing anything to get away from Jesus. Fellowship is completely torn from this point. Jesus is entirely alone. Jesus is despised. Jesus has become the very guilt of sin. And he has started making payment for an alien righteousness that will be available to his elect. That's you. 
The alien righteousness that you have, it's alien because it's not yours. It's what they keep saying the government is seeing in the sky, right? Little green dudes with crazy triangle-shaped heads and big eyeballs floating around all over the place. It's definitely not like aircraft that they've been working on since you haven't heard anything since the stealth in 1992, right? It's definitely not that they're working on drones. It's definitely aliens. Fellowship is completely torn from Jesus. He's entirely alone. He's despised. Those disciples that would give up anything to follow him have now given up everything to get away from him. Isaiah 53 and verse 5 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, we are healed. And this is what Mark is focused on. He gives us perhaps some breadcrumb language that pulls us forward in the story that kind of keeps us going, that gives us hints of what's to come. Remember that Jesus ascended. Remember that the story says he will be resurrected. But in this moment where we are here, Jesus is despised, left by all of his friends and alone. And I think the whole purpose of Mark's including this in his gospel is to show the shame it was, it was worth it to take on the shame of being stripped naked to abandon Jesus. The cloth that was ripped from that man perhaps passes to Jesus as the cloth that he wore in death. And then the white garment at Jesus' transfiguration. And then the, the young man or the angel's white clothing at the tomb. Mark's breadcrumbs draw us on past the immediacy of the mission, to wakeful purpose. But they're just breadcrumbs. So if we were to go back to our principles, why, why is this then here? What does this do for us? What do we do because this is true? Again, with Mark's purpose, he's showing the immediacy. He's wrapping up the disciples' failure to be wakeful in prayer making sure that we don't neglect to understand this terrifying reality that's happening with the guards and the people that are taking Jesus. So terrifying that this man would rather run away naked. Does it matter? It matters because Jesus' obedience was complete. He completely fulfills everything that was asked of him. But if you were to back up from that, that's interesting that Jesus was obedient. I think Mark calls us to obedience. To bring us into deeper obedience. To follow the example of Christ. To be steeped in prayer. What if that was Mark's biggest ask for us in this section? Was, will you be a praying people? That should be so easy. It really doesn't take a lot to pray. You don't need any special materials. Um, you don't even need like a little hinged thing that you can fold down and kneel on. You don't even need anybody in the room, not two or more. You just pray. How do we then feel more comfortable with Mark's gospel? Knowing that this scene then hammers home Mark's purpose, when we circle back and read it, we can appreciate that he's calling us into deeper obedience to God in Christ. Through the example of Jesus, who to the point of total neglect of all of his friends, of all of his followers, still fulfilled all that God called him to. And he did it powered on prayer. Remember, we're, we're, we're still just at the edge of the garden. Where Jesus has told his disciples, hey, will you stay up and pray with me? It wasn't stay up and pray for me. Stay up and pray because you're going to need this prayer because an hour of trial is coming to you. One of you is going to deny me before the rooster crows twice. But they couldn't stay up and pray. Maybe you know that. Maybe you know that feeling. Maybe you know that about yourself, but you can change it. It's just discipline. 
So I would encourage you to take on this challenge. And it's not big, but it's significant. It's personally significant. Pray every day this week. That's number one. Every day this week, just pray. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe you're really disciplined. Maybe you're one of those people I'm jealous of. Maybe you have patterns, right? You wake up, you open your Bible. It's one of the nice ones. You have a one cup of coffee. You're not like me where you're finishing one and then like making another. Like you kind of need two cups. Maybe you like spread out and, you know, you've got 15 minutes. Like I remember my pastor in New Mexico, like he was like, yeah, here's how I do my devotional time in the morning. I wake up and I put on some music and I pray and I sing along and then I read in my scriptures and I spend some time praying. I'm like, dude, that's awesome. That is not me. You don't have to be that. Just pray every day this week. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know if it's a regimented time. I don't know if it's as you're, as you're walking around. I don't know if it's, um, you know, you, you spend some time just kind of sitting in your car before you go into the office, before you start your day, if it's throughout the day. But don't give yourself the excuse to make it be just kind of like as you're rushing along in the last seconds that you think about it. Really spend some time praying every day this week. And then pattern your prayer. Maybe you're like, well, I don't, I don't know how to pray, man. Like, um, I remember a story, again, my pastor in New Mexico, he had just been working with this guy, and the guy had just become a believer, a pretty rough background, and the guy still cursed as he would pray. <laughs> um, maybe you're like, I, I don't really know how to pray. Maybe you're not quite there, um, but maybe you don't know how to pray. Uh, you could just put this little acronym in your head, ACTS, okay? Um, not A-X-E, A-C-T-S, like the book, ACTS. You start your prayer with adoration. It's an appropriate way to start praying to God. You're awesome. I love you. You're powerful. You created everything. You blow me away. I don't know how the stars work, but they're cool to look at. Confession. Again, it's not in a booth. Not talking to a guy. Jesus is your priest. You're confessing to God your many sins. I used to love that about my grandfather. I never understood it until many, many years later. He would sit down at the dinner table and, and he would pray for us before every meal. Every meal was called supper. I don't understand that either. But he would pray before supper, whether this was actually breakfast or lunch. And he would say, Lord, forgive us for our many sins. I remember thinking, gosh, I know my grandfather. I don't know what his many sins are. Confession. Thanksgiving. Thankfulness to God. It's such a healthy thing to remember to be thankful. You know, you go to sleep every night I know that you do. You think you don't. You're telling me you're not sleeping. I know you are. Because I know what happens to the body when it doesn't sleep. I used to be involved in something really fun called sleep deprivation training. Um, and I know that eventually the body just goes to sleep. Thanksgiving keeps you mindful to be thankful to God. All the things that he gives you. You go to sleep, your little eyes close, your mind shuts off, your body keeps breathing. Praise the Lord for that. That's awesome. He makes your heart beat. I don't know how that works, right? And I know lots of smart people do know how that works, except they don't, okay? What they're going to tell you is you have electricity in your brain, and, and that fires off, you know, neurons, and there's synaptic gaps, and all these muscles respond like, cool, where's the electricity come from inside my brain, smart guy? Thankfulness. God, all night long, you kept my lungs breathing and my heart beating, and there's some reason. And it's one of two reasons. He did that so that he would be glorified in you and or so that you would become saved. So where are you? Why is God resuscitating you? For his own glorification or for your salvation? I don't know where you are, but one of those two things is true about you. He's resuscitating you constantly. Eventually he'll stop and you're going to die. 100% of the time, it's true. Well, not 100%. There was like two guys it wasn't true for. But other than that, all of you are going to end up in a box. Right? And they're going to paint you up, put some perfume on you so you don't smell weird. But that's what's going to happen to you physically. You're going to die. And so God's resuscitating you right now for one of two reasons. His glory or so that you will respond to his grace and salvation. So thanksgiving. God, thank you that you kept me around. It keeps me humble to do that. Finally, supplication. Spending time with God, the creator of the universe. Um, maybe you have time for a Netflix documentary about large animal science. Maybe you have time to pour three hours yesterday into a documentary about hoarders. 
as an example. How about some time for the sovereign creator of the universe who is sustaining your body? Acts. And finally, look for opportunities to praise God. These are the three things. One, pray every day this week. Two, pattern your prayer if you don't know how to pray. Pray. Three, praise God. We're so quick to be skeptical and pessimistic. Right? This, this is my natural mode. This is my heart language. is skepticism, pessimism, and negativity. My life is a joke. I'm like a clown, right? This is why I'm here. This is why this is going on in my life. That is dissatisfaction with all that God has given me. Am I really dissatisfied by the life that God has given me? That's sinful. Whatever lot God has me in, I should be satisfied in that. told you about my friend Preston who had a crippled hand from a, a knife fight in prison. And uh, I would always cringe, right? It's like somebody laughing in a Paul Washer sermon when you're live, which I've seen Paul Washer preach and I've heard him say something. People start laughing. You're like, oh, please stop. He's going to yell at us. Then my brother Preston was like that, right? People would start complaining about like a pain in their body or something like that. And you'd be like, dude, please don't let him hear it. And then he would come over and he'd be like, are you complaining about a pain in your arm? You're lucky to have that arm. And it's funny, but it's a right perspective. We forget sometimes that all God gives us is his grace. All he owes us is judgment. What he gives us is his grace. He has a common grace that the sun shines on the believer and the unbeliever alike. So like I said, you're one of two people. You're either here for God's glory, whatever that means in you, because you're a believer or because you're not, but you're going to glorify him in some way, or you're here to be redeemed and you need to respond to his gospel. There are only those two things. And for a period, the sun shines on both of those people alike. Immediate obedience requires awareness, wakefulness, careful attention, and prayer. I want to close with Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked, and be seen exposed. Let's be encouraged in that. Let's be encouraged to be found in prayer, ready, wakeful. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace and your goodness and your mercy. Thank you that you have inspired your word so that we could know you and not look around in the dark and try to find you in a broken, fractured world who finds anything but you, who worships the creature rather than the creator, who's been turned over to the lusts of our own mind. But God, you've given us your clear word. We thank you for... We thank you that we can come to your word in passages that maybe at first glance would seem strange, confidently knowing that you have a purpose in it. 